Hello, we're Orsa and Chris of A Flatpack History of Sweden, a chronological history podcast looking into the stories and personalities throughout Swedish history. We start in the Stone Ages and make our way through time to eventually reach the modern day and start each episode with a Swedish phrase or saying. We've already covered prehistory, the Vikings and the foundation of the Swedish state and are now deep into royal conflict during the Middle Ages. If you like the Scandinavian History Podcast and want a bit more information on Sweden's part of this journey, do give us a listen. Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. In the last two episodes, we've been looking at the two major institutions that formed the political, religious and cultural basis for life in medieval Scandinavia, the kingdom and the church. Throughout the next 500 years of history and beyond, we'll see how the crown and the cross will continue to shape and be shaped by events. The kingdom and the church will remain the framework of politics and points of reference along the way, so I think it was worthwhile to dwell on them for two episodes. Today, however, we're back to the narrative, diving into the rise and fall of royal Danish saints among the descendants of Sven Estridsson. But as we do, we'll see the themes that I talked about in the past two episodes pop up again and again. I'll try to resist pointing out every time they do so, otherwise I fear it would get annoying rather quickly. Episode 34, Royal Saints. All the way back in episode 29, Tables Are Turning, we talked about Sven Estridsson. You may remember that he was the grandson of Sven Forkbeard through his mother, Estrid. Sven Estridsson's cousin, Hardaknut, had inherited the throne of Denmark and England, but when he died young, unexpectedly, and rather dramatically in the middle of a toast at a feast, Sven Estridsson was quick to claim Denmark for himself. Since he was the grandson of the great Sven Forkbeard, even though it wasn't through a direct male line, Sven Estridsson enjoyed the support of parts of the Danish nobility. But, unfortunately for Sven, he wasn't the only pretender. King Magnus the Good of Norway also claimed the Danish throne. Magnus fought Sven for years, and even though Magnus basically won every single battle, he never managed to put an end to Sven Estridsson's claim to Denmark. At the end, on his deathbed, King Magnus of Norway actually bequeathed Denmark to Sven Estridsson, possibly to annoy his uncle Harald Haldrada, who had forced Magnus to share the Norwegian throne with him. But Harald Haldrada had no plans on letting Denmark go without a fight, so he attacked Sven, trying to wrest the country away from him. Harald and Sven fought a long war for the control over Denmark, and the familiar pattern repeated itself. The Norwegians were victorious on the battlefield, but somehow Sven always lived to fight another day. The war only ended in 1066, when Harald decided to go for a larger prize and sailed off to fight to succeed as King of England after Edward the Confessor, who had died recently. Maybe Harald thought that he'd be in a better position to conquer Denmark once he had the resources of both Norway and England at his disposal. Whatever he may have thought, Nothing came of it, since he was defeated and killed at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in the fall of 1066. 
You'd think that when Sven Estridsson, after decades of war, had finally managed to shake off the Norwegian competition for the Danish throne, he'd want to settle in and rule his kingdom undisturbed. But no. For some reason, Sven Estridsson thought that he, too, should give conquering England a go. After all, his maternal grandfather, Sven Forkbeard, not to mention his uncle Knut the Great, had been kings of Denmark and England. So why shouldn't he? At the time, the situation over in England was a bit messy. The Norman rule was unpopular, and the last remaining member of the old English royal dynasty, a guy called Edgar Etheling, was using bases in Scotland to instigate risings wherever he could. William the Conqueror, who had been king of England since 1066, didn't take kindly to this activity, though. In 1068, he went north, spreading death and destruction among his opponents, and basically anyone else who happened to get in his way. This didn't endear William to his new English subjects, and Sven Estridsson, who was observing from the safety of the Danish sidelines, decided that the time was right to try and take advantage of the chaotic, chaotic situation. Sven allied himself with Edgar Etheling and sent a fleet to conquer England in 1069. The Danes joined forces with Edgar, and they did have some initial success, managing to capture York, the old Viking town Jorvik. But, Sven being Sven, his military luck soon ran out. Before long, William returned and took back York. He once again spread death and destruction in Northumbria, but to get rid of Sven Estridsson, he paid him a handsome bribe and sent him back to Denmark. Edgar Etheling was forced to withdraw north across the border into Scotland, and he spent the rest of his life in fruitless attempts to reclaim the English crown. But that's the subject for a completely different podcast. Sven Estridsson actually tried to invade England again a few years later. Some people just never learn, do they? In 1074, or possibly 75, Sven once again tried to conquer England, but the attempt was even less successful than the last time. And that was to be his last and final attempt, not because he suddenly realized that he was rather rubbish at war, but because he died soon afterward, in 1076. He was laid to rest in Roskilde Cathedral, which, since then, has been a popular burial place for Danish monarchs. In many ways, Sven Estridsson was Denmark's last Viking king, and its first medieval monarch as well. Throughout his reign, and that of his sons and grandsons, Denmark definitely took the shape of a medieval kingdom along the lines that we outlined in the previous two episodes. Between all his wars, Sven found time to get into church matters as well. He ordered the construction of many churches all over Denmark, and Adam of Bremen, who travelled through the country during Sven's reign, was impressed to find that there were over 300 churches in Scania alone. That was more than in Norway and Sweden together. Sven liked Adam, and provided him with a lot of information for his writings, but he wasn't too fond of German clerics in general, though. He worried that too many of them would undermine the independence of his kingdom, so he encouraged Anglo-Danish priests from England to take up position in Denmark. Sven even managed to circumvent the Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen and correspond directly with the Vatican, and it seems that he developed something of a personal friendship with the new pen pal of his, Pope Gregory VII. But there were still limits to what his direct line of communication with Rome could achieve. Sven Estridsson's attempts to get Harold Bluetooth canonized failed, for instance. It was also Sven Estridsson who divided Denmark into eight dioceses, and he donated lots of land to the church to secure the economy of these ecclesiastical provinces. During his reign, the church in Denmark became a political power player thanks to its ballooning wealth. 
This actually shifted the balance of power in the country, undermining the position of the free landowning farmers. The free farmers, who once had constituted the backbone of Danish political life, were squeezed between the new large landowners, the nobility and the church, and lost their political clout almost completely. On a personal level, Sven Estridsson was married no fewer than three times. Actually, it was just as much political as personal, since all three marriages were dynastic affairs meant to improve his international connections. His first wife was a daughter of King Arnon Jacob of Sweden, who hosted Sven Estridsson during his fighting with the kings of Norway for the Danish throne. This first wife died in the late 1040s, and when his father-in-law, Arnon Jacob, died in 1050, Sven Estridsson actually married his widow, the Dowager Queen of Sweden, who also just happened to be his former mother-in-law. If you think that sounds a little gross, you're not the only one. The Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen ordered the marriage dissolved, and the Pope agreed. So, when Harald Hardrada fell in England in 1066, Sven Estridsson was free to marry, and saw his chance for a third dynastic marriage by wedding the Dowager Queen of Norway, the widow of his Norwegian nemesis. Sven Estridsson had at least 20 children, but unfortunately for him and his plans for an uneventful succession, almost all of these kids were born out of wedlock. That doesn't mean that there weren't any candidates willing to succeed him among his illegitimate sons. On the contrary, Sven Estridsson would later be known as the father of kings, because no fewer than five of his sons would end up on the Danish throne. That may sound impressive, but it wasn't particularly beneficial for Denmark, since it wasn't exactly conducive to a stable long-term government for the kingdom. The first son to succeed Sven Estridsson was called Harald, and he was elected king in 1076, the same year Sven died. Harald had participated in his father's 1069 invasion of England, together with his younger brother Knut, who was also really keen on being elected king. So in order to secure the election, Harald had to agree to limiting his own power and giving the Danish nobles a lot of autonomy in relation to the crown. This made Harald a relatively weak king, but not necessarily a bad one. For instance, he allowed the public to use forests on land owned by the crown, and he abolished trials by combat and trials by ordeal. In a trial by combat, the two parties involved in a legal case would fight each other in single combat, and whoever won the fight also won the case. In a trial by ordeal, the accused was supposed to prove their innocence by holding a red-hot iron bar in their hands. The logic was that if you were innocent, God would step in and miraculously make sure your hands weren't burned. King Harold didn't care much for these methods, and instead he introduced legal proceedings where evidence, testimony and oaths were considered more important than physical prowess or the ability to hold on to smoldering bits of metal. Harald's also credited with improving and standardizing the minting of coins in Denmark, and with founding mints in Ribe, Viborg, Lund and Schleswig. That's perhaps not the most exciting thing to do, but it can be very beneficial for a country's economy. To some, this made Harald a beloved reformer and lawmaker who worked for the benefit of his realm and his people. But it did not impress Saxo Grammaticus, the grand old man of Danish medieval historiography, who dismissed Harald as weak, yielding to the will of the common people. Others concurred and characterized him as a mild-tempered and easily controlled person. This might be a reason he's known to history as Harald the Whetstone, that is, Harald the Soft. Unfortunately for the common people, not to mention Harald himself, he died after only four years on the throne. Since he didn't have any heirs, he was succeeded by his brother Knut, 
who had challenged him when he was elected king, and who had continued to harass him throughout his brief reign. The new king, Knut, had more typical regal interests, like fighting and showering the church with money, other people's money. Incidentally, this money showering of the church earned the king a lot of enemies among the Danes, whom he then got to fight. Even though it was obvious to most people by this point that Denmark had lost control over England, Knut decided to try and reconquer his family's old realm. In the year 1085, he felt secure enough in his position as king that he decided to make a serious attempt at claiming the English crown. He gathered no fewer than 1,000 ships for the invasion, but his armada never even left Denmark. Unfortunately for Knut, a completely unrelated conflict with his southern neighbour, the Holy Roman Emperor, delayed the departure of his fleet for so long that the independent-minded Danish warriors just got sick of waiting and went home again. For obvious reasons, Knut was furious and he decided to impose a fine on all those who had left without leave. This attempt, in combination with his decision to enforce the practice of tithing in Denmark, that is, paying a portion of your earnings to the church, backfired. The fact that Knut just demanded these payments without calling things that traditionally would decide on such issues didn't help his case either. Instead of increased incomes, King Knut was faced with a rebellion. The tithe, which was supposed to pay for the foundation of a number of monasteries and other religious institutions, was unpopular not only because it meant people would have less disposable income, but also because it was considered a foreign influence that didn't belong in Denmark. Knut was unable to quell the rebellion and was forced to flee, eventually ending up in the town of Odense. But the rebels were hot on his heels, and on July 10th, in 1086, they captured the town. Knut didn't really know what to do next, so he and his retinue sought refuge in a church, hoping to be safe there, or at least to gain time. King Knut kneeled in front of the altar, singing hymns, while his brother, Benedict, and his last loyal guards tried to fight off the rebels who did what they could to force their way into the church. Since the door was blocked, the rebels threw spears and stones through the windows, and one of these stones hit King Knut in the head. The monarch started to bleed profusely, but, at least according to the legend, he kept his cool. Knut simply picked up a vessel from the altar to collect the blood pouring from the gaping wound in his head, and continued to chant his hymns. He didn't stop singing before a spear thrown through a window hit him in the side and finished him off. Not only Knut, but also his brother Benedict and another 17 men were eventually killed by the rebels. King Knut and his brother Benedict were buried in the church, and soon the priest there started to report all kinds of visions and signs indicating that Knut was a saint. The fact that he was killed in a church while peacefully singing hymns instead of taking up arms to defend himself but also in the process defiling the sanctuary of the church with violence, strengthened the case for canonization. His large donations to the church and the introduction of tithing during his reign probably helped too. But Knut's elevation to sainthood was far from a foregone conclusion. You see, he was succeeded by his half-brother, Olaf, who hated him while he was alive and who had no plans whatsoever of participating in making him a saint after his death. But unfortunately for King Olaf, soon after he ascended to the throne, Denmark was hit by bad harvest after bad harvest until Olaf started to be called Olaf Hunger by his malnourished subjects. He finally relented and moved Knut's body from the modest grave in the church where he'd been killed to a stately tomb in a new cathedral that was being erected in his honour. 
but it was too late for poor Olaf, and he died less than a year later. As unfortunate as an untimely death may be, Olaf's early demise at least saved him from the humiliation of having to receive the official papal declaration that his hated half-brother Knut, from now on, was an official saint. Instead, it was his brother Eric, yet another of Sven Estridsson's sons to become king, who had the honor of presiding over the solemn ceremony on Good Friday in the year of 1101, where the bones of St. Knut were placed in a jewel-encrusted box. But Eric, the third of Sven Estridsson's sons to become king, probably didn't mind all the festivities for his saintly brother. It was good for the prestige of the dynasty to have a saint in the family, and almost every kingdom in Christendom seemed to have a patron saint. Now Denmark had one too. Besides, unlike Olaf, Eric had been a supporter of Knut while he was alive. In fact, it was more or less by chance that Eric hadn't joined his brothers Knut and Benedict when they went to Odense and had to seek shelter in that church where they were killed. When the news of Knut's death reached Eric, he had fled to Scania. There he'd kept a very low profile during Olaf's time on the throne, basically hoping that his brother the king wouldn't show up one day to kill him. But that never happened, and when Olaf eventually died, Eric was elected to be his successor in 1095. By a lucky coincidence, the bad harvests that had marred Olaf Hunger's reign and tarnished his reputation stopped when Eric became king. A lot of people saw this as a sign of divine favor for the new monarch, and possibly that his martyred brother Knut was interceding on behalf of the new king and his people. Regardless of whether the improved food situation actually was a result of God's favoring Eric, he was given the nickname Eric Evergood. And as medieval nicknames go, it's probably not the worst. If Saxo Grammaticus is to be believed, and I'm not saying he is, good harvests weren't the only reason people liked King Eric. Apparently, he was very charismatic and could charm both noblemen and the common people. He would attend things where he'd show off his talents as an orator, and afterwards, he'd do a walkabout, greeting regular people and listening to what they had to say. At the same time, he was careful not to rub the nobility the wrong way by infringing on their rights or threatening their incomes. Once, at a thing in Viborg, King Eric announced that he and his wife, Queen Bodil, intended to set out on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which had recently been conquered by Christians in the First Crusade. The assembled people were distraught to hear this and tried to convince him to give up the plans for such a dangerous journey but to no avail. Eric appointed his son Harold, known as Harold the Spear, and the Archbishop of Lund as regents in his absence. This was the very first Scandinavian Archbishop, since Scandinavia had been separated from the Archdiocese of Hamburg-Bremen only a few years earlier. We talked about these ecclesiastical power struggles last time, remember? Anyway, once these administrative details were settled, Eric, Bodil, and their entourage set off. They took the traditional Viking way traveling over the Russian rivers to Constantinople, where King Eric Evergood fell ill. He decided to go on anyway, but only made it till Cyprus, where he died in July 1103. His wife, well, widow at this point, was also ill, but continued on the journey. Queen Bodil actually made it all the way to Jerusalem, but there she died as well. Eventually, the news filtered back to Denmark that their popular king had died on his pilgrimage. Even though King Eric's son, Harold the Spear was already regent in his father's absence, he wasn't elected king when it came to it. Instead, his uncle Nils was elected king in the year 1104. For those of you keeping score at home, 
he was the fifth and last of Svend Estridsson's sons to make it onto the Danish throne. As was expected of the new king, Niels arranged a dynastic marriage for himself and married Margaret Peacemaiden in the year 1105, the year after ascending to the throne. Maybe the name sounds familiar to you. At least, I hope it does, because we've talked about her before. She was the daughter of the Swedish king Inge and the widow of King Magnus Barefoot of Norway, whom she had been married off to in order to seal the peace deal between her father's and her new husband's kingdoms. That's when she received the nickname Peacemaiden. If that story doesn't ring a bell, don't worry, you can always go back to episode 31, The Last Vikings, to refresh your memory. Anyway, as Queen of Denmark, Margaret had the opportunity to be more than just a pawn in international alliance building. Niels was generally benevolent, but he doesn't seem to have been overly bothered with the day-to-day business of running the kingdom. Instead, he was happy to leave that to his wife. Fortunately for the Danes, Margaret Peacemaiden was a competent manager who ruled with all the wisdom and energy that her husband lacked. For almost a quarter of a century, as long as Margaret was in charge, Denmark had peace, both domestically and with the Queen's native Sweden. She reformed the royal bureaucracy, improved the tax collection, and even minted coins in her own name. Margaret also favoured the church with large donations of land and money, which secured ecclesiastical support for her husband's reign, despite the fact that a woman was actually calling the shots. In 1125, Margaret's and Niels's son, Magnus, was elected king of Sweden after the previous king had been murdered for not showing local nobles the respect they thought they were entitled to. Magnus, who was a Geat as opposed to a Swede, was backed enthusiastically by the Bishop of Sigtuna, who had been appointed by the Danish Archbishop. This may have been because his mother was the Queen of Denmark, but also because he didn't hesitate to persecute the remaining pagans in Sweden, since his new kingdom still wasn't 100% Christian. According to contemporary sources, King Magnus raided an island considered sacred by those who kept faith with the old gods, and there he stole some holy objects in an attempt to stamp out the old religion. After that incident, the non-Christian Swedes considered him a defiler of temples and unfit to be king. The Geats, on the other hand, don't seem to have minded particularly, possibly because Magnus was half-Geat himself through his mother, but more likely because defiling a pagan temple would be a sure way to boost your reputation among the already firmly Christian Geats. But in the year 1130, the Swedes forced Magnus to flee to Denmark, even though the Geats still considered him their rightful king. By this time, his mother Margaret Peacemaiden had died, and the country was left in his father's hands, and those hands were quite inexperienced, despite the fact that Niels had been king for more than 25 years by now. Seeing how he had lost his Swedish realm, Magnus wanted to make sure that he'd succeed his father as king of Denmark instead. The only problem was that he had a cousin called Knut Lavard, Lavard being related to the English word Lord. This cousin Knut was the only legitimate son of the previous king, Eric Evergood, the very popular one who had died in Cyprus on his way to the Holy Land. Cousin Knut had been a minor back when his father died and his uncle Niels was elected king. But now, he wasn't only a grown man, but a respected member of the royal family, holding a position of power since King Niels had made him Jarl of Schleswig, or Southern Jutland as the Danes called it. Knut Lavard had been given the task of stopping incursions from a Slavic tribe living south of the border. 
and during his tenure as Jarl of Schleswig, he had not only successfully secured peace in the south, but also managed the region so well that the locals really liked him. Someone else who also liked Knut Lavard was the Holy Roman Emperor, Lothar III, who made Knut the Duke of Holstein. Holstein was the region just south of the Danish border and a part of the Holy Roman Empire. That made Knut Lavard the vassal of the Danish king and of the emperor at the same time. He was the first person to hold this position, but later in history we'll see the connection to Holstein creating problems for Denmark. At this point in time, however, it mostly created problems for Knut Lavard himself. It's true that on the one hand he was loved by people in Schleswig, he had been made the Duke of Holstein, and this made him one of the most powerful men in Denmark and a strong contender for the position of successor to King Niels. On the other hand, it can be a dangerous thing to be considered a good candidate for the crown when the living king has sons of his own. And sure enough, Knut Lavard's rise in power and popularity, not to mention how cosy he was with Emperor Lothar, put a target on his back as far as King Niels and his son Magnus were concerned. Magnus considered cousin Knut Lavard a very real threat to his plans of becoming king of Denmark one day. So, to secure his place in the line of succession, Magnus decided that Knut Lavard had to be eliminated. On January 7th, in the year 1131, Magnus trapped Knut Lavard in an ambush in a Zealand forest and had him murdered. Unfortunately for Magnus, the Danes did not take kindly to a deposed king of another country swooping in and killing a popular and competent Jarl with an excellent claim to the throne. This was especially true for Knut Lavard's half-brothers, two of Eric Evergood's illegitimate sons, Harald the Spear, who had been appointed regent when his father went on a pilgrimage, and another brother who, for clarity's sake, was also called Eric, just like his dad. Magnus was soon chased out of Denmark, and he had to seek refuge in the land of the Geats, his mom's old hood. The Geats welcomed him, since they still recognized him as the king of Sweden, whatever the Swedes might have thought. But the Geats' enthusiasm for Magnus cooled considerably when they realized that he was more interested in fighting a civil war with his cousins over the throne of Denmark than governing the kingdom where he was already king. So in 1132, even the Geats had had enough of Magnus, and they elected someone else, a wealthy Geat from Ostrogothia called Sverker, to be the king of Sweden. And of course that was a blow to Magnus, I mean, why would he like that? But there was a silver lining here. He was now free to spend all his time on the civil war against his cousins. King Niels of Denmark wasn't particularly fond of wars, and his enthusiasm for the civil war between his son and nephews was limited to say the least. To begin with, he tried to stay out of it, but in the end he had to back his son Magnus. Things started to look up for Magnus, and they improved even more when his cousin Eric was elected king of Denmark by the opponents of Niels and Magnus. This election made Harald the Spear so jealous that he abandoned his brother and actually joined Niels and Magnus instead. After he was elected king, Eric went on to lose several battles against his uncle and cousin. In the end, he had to flee to Scania, earning him the nickname Harefoot. There, he tried to gather international backing for his side in the civil war, and eventually he managed to convince the Holy Roman Emperor, Lothar III, to support him in his attempts at avenging Lothar's buddy, the murdered Duke of Holstein, and making himself king at the same time. And that was probably in the nick of time, because on June 4th, 1134, Niels, Magnus and their forces landed at Fotevik Bay in Scania, hoping to find Eric and finish him off once and for all but they were taken by surprise by a contingent of German cavalry that suddenly appeared. 
Nils, who wasn't keen on fighting to begin with, lost his nerve as he saw Eric and his forces draw near. The king fled the battlefield, leaving his son to fend for himself. But even though Magnus was left with only a small force and was outnumbered by Eric's men, he was determined to stand his ground and fight. Magnus may have been many things, but he was not a coward. He killed many of Eric's soldiers, but in the end he was overcome and fell on the corpses that had piled up around him. Even though King Niels managed to flee on a waiting ship, he didn't have long to enjoy his disgrace. He fled south, hoping to make it to safety under the protection of the Holy Roman Emperor, Lothar III. I'm not sure what Lothar would have done if Niels had made it, considering the fact that Lothar was actually allied with Niels's opponent, but the Emperor was never put to that test. Because Niels reached Schleswig, Knut Larvard's old stomping grounds, on June 25th, and despite warnings that he wouldn't be welcome in the town, Niels brushed the warnings aside with contempt, saying, Should I fear tanners and shoemakers? Turns out the answer to that question was, yes, he most definitely should have. The people of Schleswig attacked Niels and his retinue when they entered the town, first killing the vanguard and then finishing off the king as well. Eric was now king of Denmark, but he was far from secure on his throne that had been vacated when his uncle had been hacked to death by an irate Schleswig mob. So what do you do when you want to legitimize your rule in the Middle Ages? Well, you make sure you have a saint of the family, of course. So to shore up his claim to the throne, Eric initiated a campaign to get his brother Knut Lavard canonized. King Eric had a chapel built on the spot where Knut Lavard had been murdered, and he had his brother's remains interred in an abbey that he established in a town not far from there. The Benedictine monks at the abbey were given the task to collect reports of miracles at Knut's grave to help get him declared a saint. These efforts would eventually pay off, and Knut Lavard was canonized in the year 1170, giving Denmark a second royal saint called Knut. But that didn't help Eric, because by that time he was long gone. You see, even though Magnus and Niels were dead, there were still plenty of members of St. Estridsson's dynasty around who thought they should be king of Denmark. Next time, we'll see how Denmark descends even deeper into civil war and chaos. Actually, there was quite a bit of that sort of thing going around at the time, all over Scandinavia simultaneously. Norway and Sweden were also plagued by wars between various pretenders at the same time. Maybe there was something in the water, or the way the stars aligned in the 12th century. Tune in next time, as I may or may not explore that theory. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you run into others who may be interested in Scandinavian history, such as at the movies, in school, or why not in line for your next PCR test. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and a quintet of stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can now rate podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to make me a very happy podcaster. You can also support the show by going to the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop and purchasing a stylish Scandinavian History Podcast t-shirt, tote bag, laptop case, face mask, or almost anything else your heart desires. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with uplifting quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. Why not get a coffee mug with the message Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. A onesie for your baby with a text Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or a decorative pillow for the office couch saying Speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these amazing items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast 
Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages on that platform as well, at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Finally, while you wait for the next episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast to drop, don't forget to check out the excellent show A Flatpack History of Sweden with Osa and Chris. There, you'll not only learn about Swedish history, but also useful Swedish phrases to try out on your next trip to Sweden.